All right, so this is RCA class two. Uh, we're going to be talking about the fall of man. So last class we talked about how uh, God created the world, why it's, we talked about why it's reasonable to even have faith in God and, and the supernatural, etc. And then we talked about why the God uh, of Abraham is so uniquely different, what's so uniquely um, powerful and even revolutionary in the ideas presented in the creation accounts of Genesis and why those are more or less um, credible and, and believable uh, ways to understand the world. And so now this is kind of part two of that discussion. We're going to be talking about the fall of man. So this is looking at the question of how does a world created good by a God who is good, nevertheless have sin enter into it, right? If God is all powerful and all good, how is it that sin comes about? And that's really what we're going to be focusing on in this class today. So I'm going to begin with a line that I absolutely love. Uh, we sing this at the uh, Easter vigil. This is the Exultet. It's this big, long prayer, but this is a line from it. Uh, this is saying late on Saturday evening or early on Sunday morning uh, at the at the uh, Easter Vigil Mass, which is actually the Mass that usually those going through the process of RCA will enter into the church uh, via. And it says this, it says, O truly necessary sin of Adam destroyed completely by the death of Christ, O happy fault that earned for us so great, so glorious a Redeemer. And at the end of the day, uh, all of this can be summed up in... I think it's a line from Thomas Aquinas. I actually include it down below. And he says, you know, it, it's part of the infinite glory and goodness of God that he permits evil to exist, that out of it he can bring a greater good. Uh, Paul will say, you know, God permitted that all should sin, that he might have mercy on all, um, etc. And so we actually will see this uh, throughout this uh, account here, woven into it, this idea um, of God permissively allowing uh, this to happen, but also guiding the process of human history ultimately, so that even though sin is a reality, it's one that from which he can actually draw a greater good. So last time we discussed, again, that man was freely created by a God who is love. God didn't need to create us. He doesn't gain anything by creating us. And the only really reason that it makes sense for God to create us is because it is what God is right god is love in his very core love of course requires a multitude of of entities so if if god was just a single god by himself then he couldn't be love until there was someone to love but god is perfect outside of time and everything else and so it makes sense in fact that god exists as a plurality of persons god exists essentially as as a family uh in all familial relations um everything from the the man and the woman, you know, they're created in the image and likeness of God, right? All of this is divine poetry written into our very being. And because love requires freedom, we are created free. Um, and so what we're going to see here is Genesis 3 is going to use uh, poetic language. And it's going to be trying to show us a real event that happened in primordial human history, right? And this event accounts for how a perfect man and a perfect woman in a perfect world could nevertheless fall. So let's start with the discussion of why was man created again. We kind of just touched on this last time, but man was created freely by God, who is love to know and to love and to enjoy creation. Man and woman are together an image of the very Godhead, the Godhead that uses a plural name and, and singular verbs in Genesis 1 when he creates, uh, which again shows us the Trinity written into the very uh first verses of the, the Hebrew scriptures, even though it was hidden, it was obscured, and, and, and the meaning was not clear at the time. We now understand uh, more clearly what's going on there. 
And Genesis gives us a poetic account of creation. The Lord God took the man and settled him in the garden to cultivate it and to care for it, which again is the word shamar, to protect, to defend, to cultivate. Um, We'll talk a lot more about that verse in a minute here. The Lord God gave the man this order. You are free to eat from any of the trees of the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. From that tree you shall not eat, for when you eat of it, you shall die. So in paradise, the poetry is here, right? All you eat is fruit. What is fruit? It's sweet. It hangs from the trees. You don't even need to bend to pick the fruit. Uh, It takes very little to no preparation to eat. You might have to peel your banana or your orange, but, you know, an apple or a peach or a plum or a fig, you can just pluck them and eat them. And that sounds ideal, right? So this is part of the poetry of Genesis. And what we're going to see is, in the end, uh, man winds up having to eat his vegetables. (laughs) So how does it happen that sin enters the world? Well, this is what the Catechism says. Sin is present in human history, and any attempt to ignore it or to give this dark reality other names would be futile. To try and understand what sin is, one must first recognize the profound relation of man to God. For only in this relationship is is the evil of sin unmasked in its true identity as humanity's rejection of God and opposition to him, even as it continues to weigh heavy on human life and human history. The doctrine of original sin is, so to speak, the reverse side of the good news, that Jesus is the Savior of all men, that all need salvation, that salvation is offered to all through Christ. The church, which has the mind of Christ, knows very well that we cannot tamper with the revelation of original sin without undermining the mystery of Christ. So how does all of this happen? Well, here's that verse again, right? The Lord God planted a garden. He places the man there. And he made various trees that were delightful to look at and good for food with the tree of life in the middle of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden to keep it, to till it, to shamar. And God commanded the man, you are free to eat of any of the trees of the garden of Eden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. So here in paradise, in creation, we see first off the man is created first. Uh, and in fact, in the Genesis 2 account, man is created first, then all of all, all, all of creation is brought to the man. And he names it and realizes that none of it is a suitable uh, helper to him. And then God makes woman and the man rejoices. This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, right? But in, in Hebrew, the word Adam, Adam, is just the man. And so as the catechism says, uh, by this unity of the human race, all men are implicated in, in Adam's actions, in this case, Adam's sin, uh, just as all are implicated in Christ's justice. Um, Paul very clearly makes the statement that that Christ is the new Adam. We'll come back to that idea later. He is the new man. He undoes everything that happens here in the beginning. Um, we also see the spirit that's breathed into the man, and it makes him a living being distinct from all of the animals. This spirit, this this life is different from the other animals. I mean, they live, right? They're alive, but man has divine life with God. He has friendship with God. He has grace. And this means that all of mankind, again, is summed up in the man, and he is created essentially perfect. He's created without original sin, uh, something into which we are all born. And uh, because of that, what, uh, what that really implies is that Adam is a better representative of us than we are ourselves. It's easy to read these stories and think, well, if I was there, I wouldn't eat the tree. I wouldn't eat the fruit, right? Um, but Adam is, is created better than we are created. And nevertheless, he falls. So... Again, man alone is given this command to shamar, to protect or to tend or to to steward the garden directly from God, though we know that the woman at least is aware of it because she'll quote it to the serpent. And then God basically places a decision before the man. And the decision is this, trust me as your father who knows best 
or distrust me and seek or seek to define your own goods. And we have this phrase, the knowledge of good and evil. This is a very pregnant phrase. There's lots of pregnant phrases in scriptures where it seems like a simple statement, but it, what it implies is a lot more. So uh, I often give this one as an example in John three sixteen, that most famous verse, God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever would believe in him might not perish, but have eternal life. But uh, the phrase um, believe is actually in the present tense. And so really should say whoever is believing in him, which already denotes persistence. And then 20 verses later in, in John three thirty six, we read um, that those who believe will have eternal life, but those who disobey will not. And so obedience is actually contrasted with uh, belief, or rather uh, belief is contrasted with disobedience. And so um, obedience is implied in belief. It's not merely knowledge. It's not merely a, a mental ascent, right? This this phrase is, is pregnant with meaning. And so the word knowledge is very pregnant with meaning as well. And that's almost a pun because we'll see that uh, it, when in, in Genesis 5, when the man knows his wife, uh, she begets a child, right? So this knowledge, right? Knowledge means a lot more than simple mental understanding, right? Uh, knowledge implies it implies oneness, right? Because we're told that the man and the wife, they, they love each other and the two become one flesh. So literally when the man knows his wife, that's when they become one flesh and they become so much one flesh that life proceeds from them again in an image of the Trinity itself. So the man and the woman, when they, they want the knowledge of good and evil is to literally take that and make it a part of themselves, right? To make the knowledge of not necessarily good, but the knowledge of evil, right? Um, to, to internalize it. And it's also a way of kind of stating, you know, to, to, to set your own moral boundaries, say, well, maybe this is good for me, but not for you. It's almost, you know, it runs the risk of relativism saying, I, I know my boundaries and I will set what's right and what's wrong. And of course that denies objective truth, you know, so, you know, one person could say, well, you know, maybe maybe rape and, and murder is good for me. You know, you may not like it, but but it's fine for me. Obviously, that that's at the end of the day, that's nonsense. And I don't think anybody, very few people other than actual sociopaths <laughs> truly believe that. And so, again, Genesis 2 ends with the man rejoicing over that woman, the woman made from his rib. This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And we're told in that final verse that they are naked, but they felt no shame. Now, I love this idea that she is made from his side. There's a this is a, an account in, I believe it's the Mishnah, which is a basically a collection of rabbinical sayings from the, the early Jewish period. And one of the rabbis makes a comment about this. And he says that, you know, if, if the woman would have been taken from the skull of the man, uh, then it would have shown that, you know, because she's taken from the top, she's meant to rule over him. Right. Uh, and if she was taken from the foot or the heel of the man, then he would be designed to rule over her and, and basically walk on her. But because she's taken from his ribs, it shows that she's on the level with him. She's equal with him. And in fact, what do your ribs do? Your ribs protect your most vital organs for the most part. I mean, your brain obviously is, is a vital part as well. Uh, but they, they protect the things that are most internal, most core, most important uh, to you. Right. Um, and also there's this idea of nakedness. And obviously this is a video, so I can't really give you a, get a response from you, but what do you think this nakedness actually means? Right. Is it just that, Hey, look, my private parts are hanging out and I don't really care. And I'm just, you know, letting it all, <laughs> letting it all hang out. Or does it mean more than that? I think it means a lot more. And we'll, we'll, we'll come back to this discussion. So just think about that for a little bit. What do you think this nakedness being naked, but feeling no shame means? And note that it's only going to take seven verses for everything to fall apart and for them to realize they're naked and to feel shame. So first off, let's read. Now I'm going to actually pause this video for a second. All right. So here's the RSV. 
Genesis 3. Now the serpent, and here's the first seven verses right here. The serpent was more subtle than any other wild creature that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God say to you, you shall not eat of any tree of the fruit of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was also to be desired for making one wise, she took of its fruit, and she ate, and she also gave some to her husband. And in the Hebrew, it actually says, Who was with her? And he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves aprons. Now, I don't know if you know this, but uh, fig leaves actually have a, a chemical. It's similar to a mild form of uh, what's in poison ivy, urushio, whatever it's called. Uh, and so literally making uh, fig leaves and, and covering your, your naked body with them is a terrible idea. <laughs> and I think that's actually uh, part of the kind of tongue-in-cheek uh, poetry uh, written into this very account. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God. This is verse 8. Walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord amongst the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman that thou gavest with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I ate. And the Lord God then said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all cattle and above all wild animals. On your belly shall you go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her seed and yours. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain shall you bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife Eve, because she became the mother of all the living. And then the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin, and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand, and also take of the tree of life, and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden, to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim with a flaming sword, which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. All right, so that is the account of cre of the fall, right? And it's a, it's an account that's probably somewhat familiar with you. Maybe some things jumped out at you this time uh, that hadn't jumped out at you before, that you hadn't noticed before. And, and uh, feel free to share with me in, in the comments down below, uh, you know, what that actually is. If there's something that you're like, oh, I never noticed this before, because it's always kind of neat. Every time you read through scripture, different things will kind of jump out at you, right? So let's start with this question. Who is this serpent that we begin with? Um, well, 
we actually find him mentioned at the very end of, uh, of the Bible as well. So you turn from Genesis, the very beginning, the first three verses of Genesis to one of the last verses, uh, Revelation 12. We see this, there arose in heaven a war, Michael and his angels fighting. So we get Michael the archangel, by the way. Uh, and actually it was the feast of the archangels just a couple of days ago. Um, <laughs> Michael and his angels were fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought, and they were defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So this serpent isn't just a serpent. This serpent is the devil. That's, that's, you know, we always know this, but maybe you don't know why we know it. That's where it comes from. We are told very clearly that the serpent that deceives the whole world, because the whole world is bound up in Adam, right? Adam, the man, all of the world is, is bound up in him. And so when he deceives Adam and his wife, he deceives the whole world in a, in a real sense, right? So we know this isn't just a snake, but watch how he deceives. First, he asks the woman, he goes to the woman, not the man, but he says, did God really tell you not to eat from any of the trees of the garden? He's trying to change the command, right? Uh, because God's command was actually, you're free to eat of any of the trees except for one. But he's like, did God really tell you you can't eat from some of these trees? So he's changing the command. And he asks the woman, again, Adam was supposed to be protecting her. And as we read uh, in, the, in the account, uh, Adam is with her this whole time. So he remains silent. Adam's sin is actually a sin of, of remaining silent, a sin of omission, if you will. Um, the woman replies, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden. It's only about the fruit and the tree in the middle of the garden that God said, you shall not eat it or even touch it lest you die. And this is actually a change of the command too, because God didn't actually mention that. And this is where we start to get into the really interesting speculations. And I don't want to go too far into speculation, uh, but you'll, you'll, you, again, we're using figurative language here. And so there's something to be said for saying maybe they were free to handle the fruit, but simply not to internalize it, right? Uh, we don't know, but she changes the command too. And I think it's important to at least point that out. And whether she changes it because she's trying to lead herself on uh, or she's trying to, you know, agree with the serpent and, and, and paint this picture of a, of a God who wants to keep him under or keep them under their thumb, um, you know. I, it, it's hard to know for sure. That's not spelled out to us. But then we read the, the second deception continues. The serpent replies, you will not die. God knows that the moment you eat of the fruit of the trees, your eyes will be open and you will be like gods. So Satan again is twisting the image of the father to one who wants to lord his might uh, over others for his own sake, right? Who, who's willingly keeping the man and the woman under his thumb, right? He's, he's the man, right? Keeping him down. And he says, you certainly will not die. Now, is this true? We see that they eat the fruit and they don't drop down dead, right? So how do we make sense of that? So the woman sees that the tree is good for food, pleasing to the eyes, desirable for gaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and she ate it and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it and the eyes of both of them were open and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. So the woman bought it and she ate it and the woman gave the fruit to Adam who was with her and he ate it. And thus Adam, to whom the law was given directly, was not an innocent party. His sin again was to remain silent in the face of the serpent and his temptation. And immediately we see the fallout. Seven verses before, they were naked and felt no shame. Now their eyes are open and they see that they're naked and they feel shame. So what is this shame, right? What is this nakedness? Well, obviously it seems to imply physical nakedness to some extent, right? Um, but 
most animals are naked and most animals feel no shame. And the, the reason I think we feel shame, obviously some of it is cultural. Um, you know, there are some cultures where it's very natural for women to walk around topless. Um, we don't live in those cultures. <laughs> so it means something very, very different there. Um, you know, the, the breasts are understood to be far more uh, in tune with their, their intended purpose, which is the sustenance of children. Um, but I, I think that this nakedness really implies that they could they understood all of a sudden that they could use each other, right? The only reason to, to ever worry about someone looking at you naked is, is because you're afraid that they can use that knowledge against you, right? They can use your nakedness, your exposure, your vulnerability, and they can use it against you. They can use it for their own selfish purposes. And when they realize this, they cover themselves up. So what we see is they, all of a sudden, there's this, this disharmony between the man and the woman who again seven verses earlier eight verses earlier this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh this this great rejoicing took seven verses to undo because all of a sudden they realize that they can use each other they can act selfishly for their own benefit and then we see further fall out they hide from each other and then they hide from god uh, it says God comes into the garden during the breezy time of the day or the cool time of the day, and they hide from God because they're naked. And I love, again, this is one of those, it's kind of a very Jewish way of doing things, right? Uh, God asks a question, right? Uh, so I don't know why I've got, I've got typos in here that I need to take care of there. There we go. <laughs> so God, uh, you know, where, where are you? you know, he asks a question and doesn't get a response. And God often does this. God will often in scriptures ask a question just to see how man will respond. It's not that God who's omnipotent and all knowing doesn't understand, you know, where the man is or, or what happened. But I think it seems like he's waiting for the man essentially to own up to his problem. Right. And so the man and the woman quickly feel shame in the presence of their own heavenly father and things spiral out of, out of control into this, this blame game. Right. God asked the man why he hid. The man says, cause I was naked. And God asks him who who told you that you were naked doesn't get a response and says ah you've eaten of the tree have you and then of course the man blames the woman the woman blames the serpent and then the you know they're, they're both guilty for not protecting the garden obviously uh and, and and for not following the direction of god but the man again is the one who was given the um the command directly by god and the woman was given it by man and so ultimately the man is the one who's responsible and we'll see that here so god um then proclaims the repercussions, I guess we would say, uh, of this, this fall. So first he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her offspring and yours. He will strike your head while you will strike his heel. Now this, if I can only give you one verse in, in all of the creation accounts to focus on, this would be that verse. That's why I made it big and bold and I underlined it and everything else, because this is what the early church fathers recognized as the proto evangelium or the first gospel, because what we see is God recognizes immediately that there's a problem, right? He recognizes that sin has entered the world, but he promises reconciliation. He promises to this serpent, and we know who the serpent is now, right? He promises, first off, that he's going to put enmity, a, a, a gap, a great distance, um, and an opposition between the serpent and the woman, and between his offspring 
and hers. And again, this isn't just a snake. There is a level of reading this where obviously it speaks of the the evil and in, in the natural evil in the world. But clearly this is speaking of the devil himself, that ancient serpent who deceives the whole world. And then we read this, he will strike at your head and you will strike at his heel. So this actually alludes to a couple of different things. Uh, first off, again, uh, this is the first gospel promising a savior to mankind, promising the, the crushing of the head of the serpent who is the devil, the father of lies, and the bringer of death. But we also see a couple of things. First off, it says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman in between uh, your seed is actually what it says here. I'm going to change this because this is the actual translation between your seed and hers. Now, this is a, this is a weird phrase. It's often translated offspring because really that's what it means very, very commonly um, when it says your seed. It just means your, your heirs, your descendants. But biologically, here, here's a little uh, ancient biology 101. Man has the seed. Literally in Greek, the word semen is seed, right? Um, and so, you know, if you're a farmer and you're out sowing your seed in your field, you're scattering your semen in your field. This isn't a perverted thing. This is what you do as a farmer because you're sowing your seeds into your field, semen, right? And so it was always understood that the man had the seed and the woman was more of, of, a, of a fertile ground. And so using this poetry of you know divine biology right Un understanding the 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 true beauty in the creation of man and woman and, and how marital relations happen uh and whatnot nevertheless it speaks of the seed of the woman which you wouldn't expect it to do and so it seems utterly unique um that it speaks of the seed of the woman uh and i think that this actually is hinting at the the virginal conception, right? It's not the seed of a man planted in the woman. It's the seed of the woman. And then it says this, he, uh, referring to the seed, and actually this is a gender neutral pronoun, um, as is this one. So this actually could be translated as, as she, uh, she will strike your head while you strike your heel. But I don't think that's an accurate reading. Some people have, have, uh, posited this is at least, uh, there's a, a an analogy to, to Mary and her complicitness in, in what Christ does. Um, but I think that the most obvious reading of this is this way, right? He will strike at your head while you strike at his heel. Well, if you want to kill a snake, what do you do? crush his head right um there's actually there's a beautiful scene in in um if you've ever seen the passion of the christ which is that mel gibson film it's r-rated and it's hard to watch but it's a great lenten watch if you if you want it's all done in the original languages in aramaic and hebrew and um a little bit of latin as well in there and it it opens in the the agony in the garden in gethsemane and jesus is praying so intensely that he's sweating blood as it says in the in the scriptural accounts and then the devil is there and he's, he's seeing this man he doesn't understand who jesus is fully and he's you know he's standing there this kind of androgynous dark cloaked creepy looking figure and also like this snake kind of comes out and starts slithering around off the devil and, and down around christ who's praying and then as christ recognizes his hour has come he stands up and he stomps down and and crushes the head of this the serpent and so so mel gibson the the director of, of the passion was actually alluding to this very scene when he shows him striking at the head of the serpent but it also says the serpent will strike his heel now if it's a poisonous snake and it strikes your heel what's going to happen you're going to die under normal circumstances and so in fact what we see here is a promise that he will crush the head of the serpent even while the serpent strikes at his heel and and scores a minor victory right this is promising the passion and death of jesus but we know that that's not the end of the story jesus's death uh his willingness to submit to death is 
what undoes, and we'll talk about this more when we talk about Christ down the road, um, is what undoes the, the power of sin and death and hell. Um, but of course, he is the resurrection and the life, and he is God. And so obviously, it's not the end of the story. So bear this in mind. This is, this is Genesis 3.16. This is like the most important passage in the first three books, in my opinion, other than or the first three chapters, other than when, when God says, let us create man in our image after our likeness, right? I mean, that's important as well. But I mean, this is the promise. The whole point of that creation and the image and likeness of God shows that man is inherently good and why man is inherently worth saving. But this is the promise that resurrection will come, that restoration will come. And this actually sets up everything else we're going to be talking about. We call it salvation history. Or we see the story of God working um, through progressively larger, larger and larger uh, covenants, larger and larger scopes um, to to bring reconciliation uh, to mankind and himself. So we'll come back to this thought. This, this will be a constant refrain uh, that we will discuss uh, moving forward. Um, also, interestingly, uh, the, the serpent is told he will eat the dust. Now, this is an interesting word because this is the exact same word for the dust out of which man was made and the same word that we'll see in a minute that man has said he will return to. And so I don't really know uh, how poetic this is, but it's interesting that this serpent is going to be eating the dust that is man. Right. And so you, you, I mean, the image I have in my head, if, if you ever read the divine comedy of Dante in, in the bottom of hell, uh, the inferno is the, the three headed mouth of Satan chewing up three of the greatest traitors, uh, Brutus Cassius. And of course, right in the center, Judas, who, who betrays Jesus. And I just find that I find it very poetic and very, very, um, satisfyingly, uh, visceral imagery, I guess. I don't know. Um, so it's something to think about. I'm not going to say that there's definitively something there, but it's kind of interesting that that line is included since we know that snakes don't actually dust and they would have known this, right? The author of Genesis, both the divine and human authors would have known that. And then he says, God turns to the woman and he says this, I will intensify the pangs of your childbearing. Uh, and this could actually mean a couple different things, right? Uh, as we have fallen, um, we have lost a little bit of our original holiness. And with that would come an original sense of justice, an original sense of wisdom, um, temperance, which would, would moderate and, and, and help us to experience pain less animalistically, right? Uh, being so terrified of, of, of pain and, and what it causes. And, uh, so, but, but, this is this is the this is the curse upon the woman uh, in the, the intensity of her childbearing will increase um, in pain. Shall she bring forth children yet her urge will be for her husband and he shall be your master. Now, this is an interesting line because this doesn't sound like it's actually part of the punishment. It's more of just a statement of fact, the pain, the intensity of the pain in childbearing is the the punishment um, and, and the, the the urge and the mastership is more of just it's yet your urge will be for your husband and he'll be your master, right? It's a statement of fact. And it's a statement of fact born out in history that, that throughout most of humankind, men have definitely uh, used their power, their stature, their strength, their size, uh, you know, to keep women, uh, you know, somewhat uh, under thumb, under, you know, somewhat oppressed. And that's not the original state into which we were born, right? I'm not here to, to preach some sort of new age, uh, new, new wave feminism or, or anything like that. But, but we were designed to be, completing each other, right? We were designed to be in perfect unity and perfect harmony. This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And yet we see uh, right here at the very beginning, uh, this again, this disunity, 
right? And then he says to the man, cursed be the ground because of you. In toil shall you eat its yields all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to you as you eat of the plants of the field. For by the sweat of your faith you shall face you shall get bread to eat until you return to the ground from which you were taken. For you are dirt, and to dirt you shall return. So not only is there this disharmony between the man and the woman, uh, and between the man and God, but even between the man and the world out of which he was taken, the ground is cursed because of him. And he'll eventually return to the dirt and he has to now work for his food, right? It's not just all fruit trees, right? It's not just take it and eat it. It's there and it's sweet and it's juicy and it takes no work and it just appears for you. But now he has to, he has to, you know, work in the fields, thorns and thistles shall it bring forth him as you eat the plants of the field. So literally because of the fall, and this is, again, I think this is divine poetry. The, the, the wording tells us after the fall, man has to eat his vegetables, <laughs> Now, I actually like vegetables, right? I, I'm, a, I'm a really big fan of a, a nice, uh, you know, some uh, nearly every single every single dish that I prepare at home starts with the same base of, you know, sauteed onions and peppers because, gosh, those are just so great. Maybe some garlic in there and, and whatnot. So nothing against vegetables. But it's just it's interesting that, again, in paradise, it's just the sweet stuff. It's just the fruit. And then after the fall, it's the vegetables. It's the things that are not so sweet, the things you have to get down on the ground and, and, and dig for, or uh, the things that are less sweet, the things that take more preparation, right? So there's poetry here. Again, poetry. But the ground is cursed. So the fall affects not just Adam and not just Eve, but everybody. And thus we see the effects of original sin. It's an utter shattering of what it means to be mankind. Humanity is shattered by the introduction of sin, uh, his relationship with his other, the woman, uh, with, with other men, by extension, obviously, with his God and even with the world around him. And then we see, of course, the man calls his wife Eve, and she becomes the mother of the living. And we're going to see that this is actually interesting because the Paul will tell us that Adam is a type of Christ and he prefigures Christ. And so if Christ is new Adam, there has to be a new Eve. Well, who is the new Eve? I'll just let you ponder that for right now. But it's someone who's going to be, in a sense, the mother of the church, uh, <laughs> the mother of those who believe, the mother of the living in Christ. Um, and I'll just let you ponder that for right now. So how do we understand the fall? I'm going to lean on the catechism here because it gives us very clear and concise language for this. Sin is present again in human history. Any attempt to ignore it or give this dark reality other names would simply be futile. The account of the fall in Genesis 3 uses figurative language, but it affirms a primeval event that took place at the beginning of the history of man. Revelation gives us the certainty of faith that the whole of human history is marked by the original fault freely committed by our first parents. God created man in his image and established him in his friendship. A spiritual creature, man can live in this friendship only in free, and I would say humble, submission to God. But in that sin, man preferred himself to God, and by that very act scorned him. He chose himself over and against God, against the requirements of his creaturely status, and therefore against his own good. Seduced by the devil, he wanted to be like God, but without God, before God, and not in accordance with God. And as Paul says, through one person, sin entered the world, and through sin, death, and thus death came to all. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin after the pattern of the trespass of Adam, who is the type of the one to come. And thus we see that original sin does not have the character of a personal fault in any of Adam's descendants. It is original 
not original, but original. It is it is where this original, the the state of 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 brokenness, where its origin comes from. Original sin does not have the character of being a personal fault or personal sin in any of Adam's descendants, but it is a deprivation of original holiness and justice. But human nature has not human nature has not been totally corrupted. And this is this is a big contrast between uh, Catholics and, and how a lot of our Protestant brothers and sisters, the reformers, um, would understand mankind. They speak of the total depravity of mankind. Um, but no, human nature has not been totally corrupted, but is wounded in the natural powers proper to it, subject to ignorance, to suffering, and the dominion of death, and inclined to sin, an inclination to evil that's called concupiscence. Um, as we'll see later, baptism, by imparting the life of Christ's grace, erases original sin and turns a man back towards God. But the consequences for nature, weakened and inclined for evil, inclined to evil, persist in man and summon him to spiritual matter. But there is reason for hope, as Paul himself says, for just as through the disobedience of one person the many were made sinners, so through the obedience of one the many will be made righteous. And again, of course, this harkens back to Genesis 3.16. Note also that God, who is all good and all powerful, does not positively will sin, but permissively allows it, because out of its permitted existence he can bring a greater good. As Thomas Aquinas says, this is part of the infinite goodness of God, that he would allow evil to exist and out of it bring a greater good. So what is sin? Ultimately, sin is an offense against God. As uh, David says, against you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Sin sets itself against God's love and turns our hearts away from it, from God's love. Like the first sin, it is disobedience, a revolt against God through the will to become like God knowing and determining good and evil. Thus, sin is to, to love oneself even to contempt of God. In this proud self-exaltation, sin is diametrically opposed, opposed sorry, to the obedience of Jesus, which achieves our salvation. So this is why we ourselves sin. This is why we who were created by an all-good, all-powerful God nevertheless finds in ourselves a tendency to be selfish and a tendency to sin. Now, as Catholics, we often will speak, and we'll come back and we'll revisit this term down the road, but people often ask about this, and since we're talking about sin and death and grace and all these things, it's just kind of an actual time to discuss this. We'll have a quick little note here about what sin is, right? Um, first off, John tells us in his first epistle that there is such a thing as deadly sin. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that is not deadly. And the catechism clarifies, mortal sin is a sin that destroys charity in the heart of man by a grave violation of God's law. It turns man away from God, who is his ultimate end and his beatitude, his blessing, by preferring an inferior good to him. But a venial sin allows charity to subsist even though it offends and wounds it, right? And so there we see this distinction in, in types of sin, right? So everything that we do that is bad is a sin, but not all sin is equal. You know, jaywalking just isn't quite the same thing as being a serial killer. And I think that we ultimately understand that, but this is a distinction that comes from scripture itself. Um, so what is a mortal sin? A mortal sin is a deadly sin. For a mortal sin, for sin to be mortal, it has to meet three conditions. It needs to be um, an objectively grave matter, uh, committed with full knowledge and deliberate consent. So grave matter simply means it must be a serious matter. Again, John himself tells us this, right? 
for sufficient or full knowledge, basically you have to realize it's a sin. Um, Jesus actually gives various places where the scribes and the Pharisees, you know, they say that they know. And so since they say that they know and they have sufficient knowledge uh, and they understand him, therefore they, uh, they have a sin. And in fact, we actually see this in, uh, there's a parable in Luke 22 um, where we hear about the, the servants of a master and one of them knows the will of the master and goes against it. And one of them knows the will of the master and simply doesn't do it. But it's the fact that he knows the will of the master and then goes against it that causes him to be judged harshly versus one who doesn't know the will of the master and accidentally goes against it. And so he is judged much less harshly. We'll talk more about that down the road, but uh, there's a couple of different eschatological parables in Luke two or Luke 12 uh, that talk about kind of the end times. It's actually one of the places we see Jesus himself talking about purgatory. So um, don't worry, we'll get there. <laughs> uh, incidentally though, um, well, it's just a note there. Uh, feigned ignorance and hardness of heart do not diminish, but rather increase the voluntary character of a sin. So you can't just like pretend you didn't know, right? That actually makes you more culpable because you're essentially lying in the process. And of course, that has to be freely willed. And I think this one just makes just makes sense, right? If if you're brainwashed into, you know, assassinating the prime minister of Malaysia, <laughs> for lack of a better term, you're you're not freely committing that sin. Or if I, you know, if, if I put a gun in your hand and I rig up a, an electrical harness that lets me, you know control the muscles in your arm and I cause you to shoot someone. Well, you didn't mean to shoot that person. You didn't will to shoot that person, even if it was your hand that pulled the trigger. And so you're not um, blamable. But ultimately, sin destroys charity in the heart of man, especially mortal sin. It completely turns us away from God. Um, and I might give you guys an analogy in class of... Um, I'll talk about it when we talk about sacramental economy. We'll come back to this discussion about how we were designed to be created. Because you could think of us as being created like a like a chalice, right? Um, we we're designed to be um, a, a giant chalice, a receptacle for the grace of God. And the grace of God is, in fact, his life in us in a real way, which we'll talk about here in, in just a second. And original sin is like taking that metal chalice and melting it down to a ball so that it can't really receive grace anymore. And then um, through the process of the sacraments like baptism, we, we make a, an indelible mark uh, that then allows, it's like like striking that metal ball with a hammer to make a dent. And now all of a sudden it can start to collect grace. And over time, the grace, you know, wears it away and, uh, you know, makes it bigger, makes it more closely in the shape of what it was originally meant to be through the other sacraments as well, which don't worry about it. We'll, we'll get to those. That's next, next, basically the end of this semester's worth of discussions. But um, overall, we start to take on the shape we're supposed to be. But of course, we can still sin, so we can still turn away from God. So it's like taking that chalice or the partially formed remade chalice and turning it upside down, right? So if a venial sin, we'll talk about in a minute, is like tipping it. So it starts to to, to lose some of the grace, but it doesn't completely up, you know, capsize the, the, the cup. Uh, on the contrary, mortal sin is like taking the cup and just turning it upside down. And at that point you have to be reoriented. You have to be righted with God. And we do that, of course, through the sacrament of confession. So we'll talk about that more again down the road. Uh, venial sin, as opposed to mortal sin is a sin that is simply not deadly. Uh, literally the word venial just means pardonable or, or, or forgivable. And again, it's things that we struggle with pettiness, jealousy, things we struggle with on a regular basis that don't completely destroy charity, though they do weaken it. They destroy the love of God in us, but they don't meet, at the end of the day, one of these criteria. Either it's not a grave matter, you didn't fully know, uh, or you weren't freely willing it, right? And there's lots of things, you know, if somebody drugs your 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 drink or even like slips you, slip on the mickey, right, or whatever it is, uh, gives, you, uh, gives you a lot of alcohol and you didn't realize it and you wind up acting like a fool, well, you know, if you drunk yourself into that state, then, you know, it's your fault. But if somebody else kind of tricked you into it, it's a lot less your fault, right? You, you were not acting very freely in that situation. And so you should be judged ideally 
uh, less harshly. And then lastly, a word on grace, since we're talking about grace. You know, sin destroys the love of God in us, and that love is his very life, which is grace. Grace is favor, the free and undeserved help that God gives to all of us to respond to his call to become children of God, adoptive sons, partakers in the divine nature, and of eternal life. Grace is a participation in the life of God. We are created ultimately good, though we are damaged, but God loves us and he wants us to have his life in us. And so that's that's the explanation for everything we're going to be talking about, right? That's why the church is given the ministry of reconciliation. And that's not just the sacrament, but literally bringing all people into a right relationship with God. That's what all of this is about. And you either believe it or you don't. Um, but that is the mission of the Catholic Church. We know that God's grace is freely offered to all. God wills the salvation of everyone, uh, wills that all would be saved and come to a full knowledge of him. Um, but we are free to reject that grace in pride or to cooperate with that grace in humility. Um, and at the end of the day, that's the whole story of the the fall of man and and what it means for us so hopefully you found this helpful uh, obviously if you have any questions or comments feel free to share those down below i'm going to go ahead and uh, wrap this video up um there should be a link to these notes down below uh this video and i actually i was thinking about making one of those little scannable barcodes so if you want to watch this video if you have a copy of the notes you can scan it and uh uh see the video so i will hopefully be able to put one of those on there as well but anyway god bless you and uh see you next time